0: Like, shit's effed up, let's just say that, right?
1: <laughs> it's a good way around, to put it.
0: Uh, you look around, and I think people are doing that deconstruction work much sooner. Because the poverty of our existing constructs is just nakedly visible for anybody who's got their eyes open. Once you see the, kind of, the reality of what it takes to, to live a life of commitment to solidarity with suffering of other human beings, if you keep asking those questions all the way... You know, that's inevitably where you end up if you have integrity to those questions. And so I think that's part of why there's this search for the wisdom stream, you know, exists within the contemplative tradition. I think it's why we see younger and younger folks beginning to take interest in this work.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode 20 of Contemplate This. Conversations on Contemplation and Compassion. I'm your host, Tom Bushlack, and this interview is with Michael Poffenberger. He is the Executive Director of the Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Now, if the Center for Action and Contemplation, or the CAC, sounds familiar to you, that's because it was founded by Father Richard Rohr, who was also my very first guest on Episode 1. Michael joined the CAC five years ago and is part of a younger generation of leaders seeking to integrate contemplative practices with compassionate social action. Michael was inspired in college by spending time with St. Mother Teresa and her Sisters of Charity in Kolkata, India, and then by learning more about the work of Dorothy Day and the Catholic Worker Movement, as well as the writings of the Trappist monk Thomas Merton on contemplation and social action. Prior to arriving as the executive director of the CIC, Michael Poffenberger helped to found what was then called the Uganda Conflict Action Network, which is now simply called Resolve. At Resolve, Michael led bipartisan coalitions and developed international campaigns to advance policy change for war-affected communities in Africa. He helped author and win passage of legislation, Focused on the prevention of violent atrocities and testified before both the US Congress and the United Nations Security Council. Michael has an impressive background and he understands how important it is to ground our works of love and justice in the world in a spiritual practice that keeps us centered and humble. On a somewhat related note, I want to let you know about a new book that has just been released called Contemplation and Community, a gathering of fresh voices was just published and released by Crossroads Publishing Company. Some of you might recall that my first episode with Father Richard Rohr came after I met him at a gathering of younger teachers of contemplative Christian practice at Snowmass, Colorado in 2017. Well, about 17 of us each contributed a chapter to this book, and we're pretty excited to share it with you. In fact, several contributors besides Father Richard Rohr have already been on the podcast, including Tilden Edwards in episode 3, Philena Hewars in episodes 4 and 15, Matthew Wright in episode 8, Stuart Hirgenbotham in episode 10, Father Lawrence Freeman in episode 14, and Sarah Bachelard from episode 17. And I also contributed an early chapter in the book where I provide a working definition of what contemplative practice is, regardless of tradition or background. And I conclude by suggesting some core ideas that I believe are essential for the integrity of the Christian contemplative tradition and practice into the 21st century. So if you are enjoying this podcast, I think you'll want to check out this book. I'll definitely put a link to it in the show notes page. Speaking of which, you can find more information about Michael Poffenberger, the Center for Action and Contemplation, and Resolve on the show notes page, which you can find at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 20. That's episode two zero with no spaces. I continue to be overwhelmed and grateful for all the love and support from listeners who are enjoying the podcast And I appreciate if you are able to provide reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your episodes. And of course, if you are so moved to support the podcast with a free will offering, you can do that right on the show notes page or at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash donate. Now let's get right into my interview with Michael Poffenberger. Okay. I'm here with uh, Michael Poffenberger. Thanks for coming on Contemplate This. My pleasure. Good to have you here. So you are in Albuquerque, New Mexico, at the Center for Action and Contemplation, correct? Yep. So tell us a little bit about who you are and, and what goes on there, what you're doing, and then we'll go back from there.
0: Uh, all righty. Well, I'll give my best shot. Um, I moved to Albuquerque five years ago to um, uh, assume the role of executive director of the Center for Action and Contemplation. Um, my background, my, my personal story, I grew up, um, uh, Irish Catholic, but in a, in a kind of a interfaith or ecumenical family and was always drawn to, to spirituality and the spiritual life, um, uh, really was first exposed to this contemplative tradition of Christianity, um, during my college years at Notre Dame, um, working within a Catholic worker community. I got to spend a spring break um, visiting the monastery in Gethsemane uh, where Mm. Thomas was just had those like profound early experiences that even though I didn't necessarily have the greatest grasp of what this deeper stream was of Christianity, it left a mark on me that kind of never left. Um, Then I spent about 10 years doing um, human rights work actually focused on atrocity prevention in central Africa and um it it still seems in some ways like this radical leap from um you know working with local civil society leaders in these um uh communities that are that are devastated by the effects of um violence and conflict in congo and uganda and central african republic uh to helping lead an organization that's about teaching this contemplative path but um, um, the longer I've been here, the more it feels like everything kind of comes back full circle. And a lot of what I was needing and seeking in those days in terms of how to approach that work from this deeper ground is what I'm trying to help CAC develop and offer for others. Um, so, um, our work here at the center is, um, yeah, uh, should I start talking about that or?
1: Yeah, let's do it. I mean, I, I'm going to want to go back and ask you about the activism and, and all of that, but yeah, talk about the center.
0: Sure. Um, So our founder is Father Richard Rohr, this delightful Franciscan friar who um, uh, started um, uh, as a kind of charismatic priest who would teach about scripture and then really became kind of one of our time's um, foremost proponents of this contemplative stream within Christianity. So after many years of his own um, kind of activist path, um, he founded the CAC to um, uh, guide people into uh, a contemplative kind of formation experiences. And to, um, you know, he was really, in the early days of the CAC, he was really, um, I think, responding to what he experienced as uh, the kind of reactivity of so many folks who are engaged in social change work and the superficiality of of sometimes of where those efforts come from in terms of um, inner inner motive and, and, um, and capacities. So the CAC from the beginning had this very activist bent um, as mm-hmm. an organization, but as we've grown, it's become um, just a much bigger um, uh, access point for a lot of folks who uh, may not be familiar with this contemplative stream of Christianity to, to get introduced and, uh, and to, to be exposed to some of the, the, the wisdom that, that it has to offer the needs of our world today.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and Father Richard was my very first guest, episode one. Nice. Uh, yeah, so folks can go back and hear his story as well. And what year did he found the CIC again? I forget.
0: Nineteen eighty-seven was our was our kind of incorporation.
1: Okay, cool.
0: What what did Richard teach about? Because I'll I'll need to make sure that I contradict him at least once in this in this. Oh, year. I'm
1: sure you. Yeah, hopefully you already have.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> then
1: I'll I'll send him a little snippet to make sure that he knows that he's left the center in in poor hands.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Please do that for me. Thank yeah.
1: you. Yeah. Um. So you came in as the executive director 5 years ago and yeah. I I think he even mentioned at the time when I interviewed him and when I met him in Colorado that part of the reason they hired you was because you have kind of this mix of contemplative and activist background and that that that's part of the mission of the CAC is to sort of provide some depth for people who are engaged in that hard work of of social justice. So what are some of the Big initiatives, or I mean, that's so it's such an organizational question. But <laughs> yeah. uh, what what are you excited about, or what's going on right now at the CAC?
0: Whew, where do you even begin? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I think we're at the at the in the birth pangs still of what I what I anticipate or hope um, uh, will be the kind of contemplative turn for for Christianity in the West as part of this broader shift within within you know multiple spiritual traditions Mm -hmm. and um and i think richard's work you know like you know we've had a couple generations now two generations perhaps of kind of modern contemplative teachers within our tradition you know you can really look back to to thomas merton as being the early popularizer of um uh the the deeper stream of contemplation uh within christianity you know and in those early generations there are a lot of looking to the east a lot of looking to how christianity in relationship to the wisdom of, of eastern traditions really helps us see our own tradition in a, in a new light mm-hmm. um, and um you know there's been now two generations i think building on merton's work of teachers and um uh, communities that are that are have been formed in that in that Um, kind of post-Vatican II deep contemplative resurgence and what we're about here at CAC is continuing to feed that and I think you know we're on the precipice of kind of the breaking open of this of this little underground stream as a a source of real hope for the future of our mother tradition of Christianity as part of the great canon of kind of spiritual traditions in our world Um, and so my work at as the executive director has been really how do we how do we orient to what's what's happening in this moment in our in our broader landscape um and then here at CAC take what has been for the most part kind of a mom-and-pop shop really just a platform for Father Richard's you know brilliant teaching and begin to build um, a broader platform um, with a greater diversity of voices who are articulating um, you know, kind of everybody has their hand on the on one part of the elephant, so to speak, of what this uh, what this uh, stream of wisdom has to offer for us today and what it can look like as it comes into being uh, into its own maturity um, in our time. Hmm. So very that sounds very kind of big and vague and abstract. Concretely, it means um, building partnerships with new teachers who have different um, uh, emphases or nuances or audiences that they connect with most impactfully. Um, and it means, um, offering that wisdom in ways that really, uh, addresses the kind of the deep hunger that I think people have for, for real, real hopeful spirituality in our times through a variety of, of, of mediums and sources of engagement. So everything from our daily email meditations that go out to about 350,000 people now to, wow online courses, to major events and conferences and retreats, to um, uh, kind of our flagship program, what we call the Living School, which is uh, a two-year formation program with some of our master teachers. Um, we've just started a couple new things. We've, we've launched our kind of inaugural podcast ourselves, so we're now officially hey. in, the, in the podcast universe, and we we'll begin <laughs> that with, with now a few of our teachers, uh, which cool. we really cool about. Yeah.
1: That's really cool. Uh, I like the kind of hi- the brief history of post-Vatican II Catholic world. So, 1965 end of Vatican II. For those who aren't familiar with that history, and how that's really breaking open this stream to a wider audience. And in this second generation, a lot of that is uh, that used to be contained primarily to monasteries and religious life. So, like Thomas Keating and Father Richard coming out of religious life and uh kind of the formal structures but um not as any rejection of that but just as like a growth now you have a lot more people probably the majority of people coming at it as uh outside of the structures of religious life kind of seeking to integrate this into the struggles of daily living and then also i think it's father richard right who talks about the first half and second half of life that often the contemplative dimension would open more in the second half but you've got people like you and I and others coming at that much earlier. Uh, And so it's just a different avenue of kind of getting that message out there. And it seems like the CAC is really working hard to uh, help make that happen.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, you know, first and second half of life in Richard's paradigm doesn't necessarily equate, you know, with with years lived, right? But the the basic idea is that um, in so many... You know, mystics, but also you know, developmental psychologists have have written about this. That, that in the process of a healthy human, you know, maturation, you have early stage development focused on how do you build a stable sense of your own identity, and then later stage um, uh, development, which is really how do you recognize that that there's something deeper than this this individual identity to protect and maintain. That actually it's about giving away that identity in service uh, to others and. Yeah. The contemplative stream is really where that pivot happens, I think, a lot of times. And people might not call it that. It might be other experiences. Um, but in our work, what we talk about, we talk about disruption and, and the value of disruption. So almost to the T, um, uh, the people who come into our programs are coming in through something in their life falling apart. Yeah. The only exception to that is is the occasional rare case where somebody's had this profound mountaintop mystical experience that just totally you know, inverted their way of understanding their world. Yeah. You know, the, the, Paul, the Paul to Saul kind of, uh, or Saul to Paul moment, you know, if you will. But, but for the most part, it's like somebody died, their job, you know, job loss. It's uh, their faith container just fell apart. Their old certitudes no longer made sense and they, and they felt in the dark. And the contemplative tradition is really all about how do you hold the, the wisdom in that unknowing long enough you know how do you settle into the reality that our that our lives are are mystery and and allow that to guide you into this deeper interiority that 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 you discover there's these deeper dimensions of yourself than just you know your public egoic self functioning in the world that has a job and a title and a and an, and an upward climb of sorts um,
1: yeah so first you build it then you deconstruct it Then you, deconstruct it. you let it be deconstructed is probably yes. more accurate
0: there you go so, yeah, and I think okay. for us, like, with what's going on right now, like, our world is, I'm not, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on your, on your, on your podcast. Plenty
1: of people have, myself included.
0: <laughs> like, shit's effed up, let's just say that, right? <laughs>
1: it's a good way around, to put it.
0: Uh, you look around, and, uh, and I think people are doing that deconstruction work much sooner, because the, yeah. the, the poverty of our existing constructs is just nakedly visible for anybody who's got their eyes open. And so I think that's part of why there's this search for the wisdom stream that, that you know, exists within the contemplative tradition. I think it's why we see younger and younger folks beginning to take interest in this work.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah. In some ways, it's maybe a bit almost a gift to have that. Um, it, it doesn't feel like it in the moment, but even having gone through some crises myself, in retrospect, they were essential and I kind of think about that on a cultural level right now, that yeah. the only way we're going to let go of some of these old ways is if we were really faced with how violent and destructive they can be.
0: Yeah. Yep. How, how violent and destructive certainties of any kind can be in our right. world. And, yeah. Um, yeah, Richard, Richard's way of, of saying it is that our stupidity evolves us forward, you know, like where I we change at the pace of, of the suffering that we experience because of our stupidity, you know, yeah. uh, and that's not to say to celebrate stupidity. Right. But, um, right. but, but ultimately it's that, it's that what he calls in that book, falling upward, you know, like you gotta, you gotta fall in order to realize you need to learn. Uh, yeah. Sometimes
1: I mean, Lou Harris has that song stumble into grace or might be an album title, but I love that line. <laughs> <laughs> <Make> <laughs>
0: that's how place.
1: most of us get there. We get hit in the face with a mud puddle of grace. <laughs> Uh, so I'm interested to go back kind of in your own personal story and I know you said you were introduced to, it sounds like a mix of both the contemplative and the sort of compassionate social action side of things through the center for social concerns. Uh, we probably had some similar teachers that I was working with in grad school. Um,
0: you were at Notre Dame. Did I, I I did know that. And I just, you
1: may have, but uh, Yeah. yeah. So Margie File and Mike Baxter, I mean, you were talking about all the people at The Catholic Worker. Yeah. Um, so what was, what, what was that experience like for you? And because it sounded to me in your story that that was a pivotal moment that maybe opened up something deeper. So what, what were you exposed to, both, I guess, on the activist, but also on the spiritual side of things?
0: yeah I think I, I always just had this strong sense of uh, of commitment to kind of right and wrong, and really want to thank my my family and my my early faith formation for for kind of planting those seeds. But um, when I got to Notre Dame, you know it, it, when you come into contact, like so margie file and and Mike Baxter, for those who who don't know their work, are these kind of radical Catholic. Um, uh, theologians and social activists who are those rare sorts that take take the gospel seriously and take Jesus's model of of how to be in the world seriously Um, and uh, I think there's a certain degree to which when you when you come into contact with people like that and in in the CAC it's what we call the role of the wisdom teacher Mm -hmm. where there's something that's not about the ideas that they communicate but it's about the way that they that they move in the world, it's the energy that they embody in their interactions, it's it's the it's the it's the ways that they show up in the face of suffering and injustice that is by far the greatest teacher, right? And um so Margie, Mike and 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 others in that community, um uh in a sense, once you see once you see the kind of the reality of of um what it takes to to live a life of commitment to um, Uh, solidarity with suffering of other human beings you know Um, if you keep asking those questions all the way you know that's inevitably where you end up if you have integrity to those questions and Mm. yeah that just had a huge impact on me Um, and I think you know when I when I went into the world of DC and kind of very transactional politics it's it's why I couldn't quite settle into that world and just become a professional human rights you know uh, advocate or activist, but, um, but was constantly searching for that deeper ground.
1: So what was your, what would you say your spiritual practice was like in that time, like in college? And then I know there was a transition period after college where you founded, you know, an international organization, uh, now called resolve, right. Um, formerly the Uganda conflict action network. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So what was kind of grounding you through that period?
0: Yeah, it was, uh, I was struggling with my own faith during that time. So it was, it was, it was a combination of raging against what I, what I, you know, in my very, you know, teenage, late teenage and young 20 years saw as the hypocrisy of institutional religion, you know, uh, flipping back and forth between that and. attending this thing that we had on campus called milkshake mass with, with, farms. Oh yeah. And yeah. I remember that. yeah. Like beautiful, deep liturgy and, and appreciation of silence. Um, and doing mass at the Catholic worker house, you know, like where you're not in this big fancy basilica on campus, as much as I love the gospel choir, as much as the next, next person, you know, but when you're sitting there next to a homeless person, breaking bread and hearing Jesus's words about being incarnate in the, in the material reality, it takes on a very different meaning, you know? Um, So I I wanted it, but also was in a lot of rebellion and struggling against it at the same
1: time. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people can relate to that, especially at that stage of development or age. And, you know, there's sort of two ways you can go with that. You can be like, screw it, throw it, and just kind of move on. And I I feel like then... The other, like you talked about, is following the question all the way down, just pulling that thread and seeing where it goes. But there's a, that's a difficult, that's really hard to do, because um, it's anxiety producing and you're constantly holding the unknown. Yeah. But something was pulling you there. Did you have, so you had the milkshake mass and time with the Catholic worker, mm-hmm. um, any kind of like daily regular contemplative practice at that point?
0: No, I really didn't. Um, yeah. when I look back, I think my first real exposure to contemplative practice. So I did my freshman year of college. I did a week at the Gethsemane monastery. And I, to be frank, oh, wow. I think I read new seeds of contemplation and Dorothy days long loneliness while I was there. Mm. And otherwise I just didn't know what to do with myself. You know, yeah. like, like, I'm <laughs> like what do people do all day. Like, are the monks really doing anything? You know, it was like, that's, that was my capacity to think about it at that point. But, um, You know, I I did a summer um, uh, working in Calcutta with the Missionaries of Charity. And um, I had the gift of uh, this program that Notre Dame sends students around the world to kind of learn and experience different contexts of of poverty and injustice. And so I was in Calcutta. And um, so in the mornings we would go and you do mass with the sisters and then you go out and, and, you know, I was working in a hospice center um, you know, very basic medical care type stuff. But every evening they, they would come back for Eucharistic adoration, which is like the most fundamentally Catholic of all Catholic things. Oh yeah.
1: You
0: sit there in front of the, the, like, you know, transubstantiated host. And, you know, it's in the like fancy tabernacle. Pretty and
1: Preferably on your knees. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> in vain.
0: Like so Catholic. Uh, <laughs> but, Um, again, like when you're sitting there next to these nuns who've dedicated themselves to serving the poor and you're hearing the sounds of, you know, the busy city life all around you and you've just come off of a day of, um, you know, working with folks who are in these situations of just extraordinary suffering, Uh, the sitting in silence for one hour, pondering that, that there still somehow is this community of believers that there is something beneath it all that holds it together. You know, like I think that really planted the seed in me. Like that's the first time that I experienced this like sense of bodily ground in the silence that um that I touch back into hopefully um still to this day. Mm.
1: Wow. It sounds like you were exposed to whether it was the Catholic worker or the sisters of charity, people who were like radically committed that you respected uh, who also then grounded that in silence and liturgy and worship. Uh, and that, that sort of sends a message without saying anything, right. Just by action.
0: That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So then at some point, how did you end up in Africa and getting involved and then maybe take us into how that network came about and, you know, talk a little bit about the advocacy work that you did.
0: Yeah, so um I also had the privilege of I studied, I was a peace studies undergraduate student, and I studied in, in um Kampala, Uganda as as an undergraduate, as a junior. And um at the conclusion of my program, I spent some time getting to know uh these faith leaders primarily. Archbishop John Baptist of Dama was the was the early influence um, who in northern Uganda at the time were suffering this of um, uh, violent conflict where millions of people were displaced, um, and these kids were walking into town centers every night to sleep on the floors and gymnasiums and churches to escape kind of being um, uh, the, the violence and, and abduction that was being perpetrated by this armed group called the Lord Resistance Army. So um, when I when I first started studying this, this issue. It was then called the kind of world's most neglected humanitarian crisis, and you know, um, through my connections through the university, got to meet some of these faith leaders, and was just so inspired by their witness, and um, and so together with a couple of classmates, started this little website that was then called the Uganda Conflict Action Network, um, uh, you know, and started to just track news related to the conflict and really um, analyze the international policy dimensions of what was happening. You know, it's one of those situations where. In, in, in action is action, you know, in a sense that there's this whole architecture of international policy that was not touching this issue, mm-hmm. a variety of kind of geopolitical reasons. And in that context, uh, the violence was allowed to kind of grow and fester uh, to the point where it was causing that, that level of, of, of harm. Um, so it started out as this kind of sleeping on couches, um, uh, living off my credit card, um, uh, uh, project. It was taken under this organization called the Africa Faith and Justice Network, uh, uh, founded by some Catholic religious orders in Washington, D.C. Uh, for, for about a year. And then we spun out and um, uh, really spent, I spent almost a decade in my life kind of back and forth um, uh, on, on research trips and then really working with U.S., uh, U.N. and other kind of international bodies to design and and mobilize support for kind of policy interventions to help protect people from violence.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so that was, um, uh, uh, yeah, that's how it came to be.
1: Yeah. A couple of questions. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, if you were visiting there and the Lord's resistance army, I mean, a lot of these kinds of situations that you find people coming into, like you're risking your life. I mean, was, were there people being martyred or were you, were there threats uh you know against you and the work that you were doing
0: yeah the lra was not is not a, a, a highly sophisticated armed group in that sense so they're not mm. like tracking um you know who's who's coming after them i mean we do have evidence that the leader of the group joseph Kony, and his commanders were very aware of some of the things that our organization was was doing yeah but for the most part, they go where they are least likely to provoke a response. So their strategy over their three decades now of of existence, they're they're a fraction of their former selves, but they are still um, uh, at large, um, is really to to uh, victimize or target communities that are where it's least likely that anybody's going to care. Um, mm. So. You know, there was precautions that we, of course, had to take in terms of when we travel, where we travel, how we understand the security situation. Um, uh, you know, sometimes having to use convoys of peace peacekeepers or, or you know national military uh, officials to 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 improve you know security for our for our movements. Um, but but no, I you know for the most part, I really don't want to pretend there was some um, you know gamble for our own lives. We took a lot of precautions and and. There was one episode where um my colleague was out in the field and it was like a game of telephone and there's about 24 hours where we thought he had been abducted and, and likely killed by the lra which was mm. probably the darkest 24 hours of my life um um but uh but no for the most part it was really the local leaders who were the ones who were always at risk um right. so, you know, a lot of the times we're we're doing things that that they willingly accept increased risk in being a part of in in service to protecting their own communities. Yeah, um, and that's where you know the the witness um, uh, really was and the danger really was, and um, was a really humbling experience. Um, you know, here we are thinking that we're all these like courageous humanitarians, you know, um, and when you meet and actually hear the stories of some of these. These local civil society or religious leaders—it's—it's it's truly mind-blowing. Um, you know, um, uh, Archbishop Odama himself would go out into the bush. Once was bombed by the Ugandan government, who didn't—who was trying to disrupt peace negotiations. You know, almost lost his life there. Um, others, you know, there were there were religious leaders when their communities were attacked. You know, they became just refugees with their communities. They had all sorts of resources that they could have used from within the church to you know, protect themselves or, or live a more comfortable life. But instead there they were in the refugee camp, you know, with, with everybody. Um, um, you know, there's, I have dozens of stories like that of just these incredible leaders out there that, you know, I still, to this day, am am trying my best to find little ways to support.
1: Yeah. And it sounds like a lot of that network now called resolve is, um, at least some of what, what you were doing was helping, Conscripted child soldiers, right? To get out of that situation and resettled, was that a large focus of it?
0: Huge, yeah. That's yeah. that was ultimately. I mean, it was not only a humanitarian purpose, but it was the number one way to to to, to prevent further violence. Because the way that the LRA um, uh, built its own capacity to to perpetrate violence was through these abductions. So we had a, a whole variety, and have still, my colleagues are still doing this work. Have a whole variety of interventions that were helping protect people, prevent abductions, but also, um, uh, 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 you know, campaigns to actively facilitate the the surrender or escape of folks who had been abducted by the
1: outbreak. Mm, Yeah. So as you were going through that process, you were traveling there doing work on the ground with local leaders, and I know you were doing advocacy work back here in DC. What, how did you stay grounded doing that kind of work? Did you was there a spiritual practice at that point? And if no, that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> it's, well, it's not a trick question. What
0: would I really call my spiritual practice at that point? Frustration. It was like, it was the path of, of angst, you know, like of, um, you know, there's inspiration in, in seeing the folks that were, that were, that we got to meet, but also just, um, yeah, no, I, I think that's what I, that's what I really struggled with. Um, you know, at that, at that time of life is like through our, through our twenties, you know, it's like all the extroverted energy, like all the, like, um, the, the masculine getting shit done energy and that kind of heroic impulse. Um, and, um, you know we were we were deeply critical of the whole you know NGO industrial complex and the kind of the the mentalities that that existed there and just trying to be radical in our in our work but no and eventually the the limitations of that approach um, were were what did me in um, yeah you know it seems it seems very cliche to say that, but uh, no, I burned out hard um, at a certain point
1: so was that around the same time that the cAC was looking for an executive director <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's very convenient, right? Like, yeah, like, that
1: would be. Yeah.
0: No, um, it started with like in 2009. Um, I took a month off um, and uh, happened. Still don't know how exactly it happened, but, but somebody had emailed me with an invitation to this Zay style retreat that mm-hmm. was being hosted in West Virginia about an hour and a half you know, outside D.C.
1: Can you explain Tzeze for folks who might not know what that means? Yeah. Also, well, Tizay is this yeah. uh,
0: beautiful um, uh, ecumenical community of monks in Tizay, France, that began in the kind of ashes of World War II, um, and so it has uh, monks from multiple different Christian traditions and a, and a real focus on reconciliation but they have this uh, uh, monastic practice and they invite people to participate in it from all over the world, but it, it involves a lot of sung chant. It's a very particular style of, of sung chant.
1: Yeah, it's really cool for folks listening. You can look it up on probably YouTube, I would imagine, and hear some of it. It's, it's, I've done a few sessions of it. It's really powerful.
0: Yeah, definitely one of the, one of the contemplative treasures of our, of our current era yeah. in our tradition.
1: So you went, you went on a retreat somehow
0: yeah. yeah yeah found
1: your somehow,
0: way somehow somehow landed like rode my motorcycle out to West Virginia didn't know a soul and here I was on this little retreat property doing a month-long to um, uh style kind of daily rhythm and met um, uh, this this man who I'm con- convinced is a saint his name is Bob Sabbath um, and he became kind of a mentor figure in my life and among other things encouraged me to do uh, This men's initiation retreat called the Men's Rites of Passage that Father Richard, the founder of the CAC, as we're coming full circle, had helped uh, start and lead for a number of years. So um, that was kind of my entry point back into um, a committed spiritual path and community, was actually through the men's spirituality work uh, that Richard helped start.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
0: So it was another five years before I eventually made my way out to New Mexico, but that's really where it began.
1: So then were you. Still working for Resolve for that whole time. Okay. Yep.
0: yep, working for Resolve, and then on the side, we were hosting these kind of wilderness-based retreats for folks. Both the big, this big five-day kind of initiation experience, and then you know occasional weekend retreats, topically, or sometimes just you do a weekend out in the woods where you meet together, set an intention, you fast, and then you're quiet for twenty-four hours of wandering around the woods. You come back together and have a little blessing and go home. That we like to do. That we call that week, kind of week- weekend wilderness wanders, which. For somebody who's like, you know, my day job is wearing a suit and lobbying members of Congress and officials the administration. To just get out in the woods uh, and, and walk around was a real gift.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. Wow. So that, I'm guessing that put you into more of a regular practice of some kind, and it, you looked like you were going to say something there, but no, yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I would say of some kind, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, started doing, I started doing a centering prayer practice, but it's been, okay. Um, and that's part of the the men's rites of passage that Richard introduces everybody to uh, contemplative practice. Um, but um, but my practice even now is far from the, the prescribed kind of level of discipline that I think uh, uh, that, that we teach everybody else to to adopt. And I'm still I'm still working my way there. But yeah,
1: yeah. Well, still working out the uh, the karma of, of action, I guess.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, and 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 I get it in so many different ways now. I'm a seven on the enneagram, and I think partly I'm just. Mm. I am constitutionally opposed to routine, you know, so it's like I've got to change it up and and keep doing different things.
1: Well, then the wandering in the woods would probably be really good for a seven.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was perfect as far as spiritual practices go.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fun. So that was another five years. So how did it come about to end up at the CAC?
0: Well, I was on the board for a short period of time, and they had just started the living school. Uh, and it was this moment of promise. But there was a a transition in leadership and the organization kind of was in a thin time of, um, uh, not a lot of stability behind these really promising new initiatives that had just gotten started. And so I had reached a point in my work in DC where, uh, I was handing off the reins to my, um, very capable colleague and, um, was planning at the time on kind of riding my bike across the country. Um, but, um, uh, but. CAC called and asked, you know, uh, if I could just stop in Albuquerque and, um, uh, and help out for a few months while they kind of sorted things out. So I did a consulting project with them and they just asked me to kind of help assess the current state. Where's the organization's, um, current, you know, risks and, and opportunities for growth and development and, um, uh, and so I wrote up this big report and shared it with the board and they're like, great, you should just implement a bunch of these recommendations.
1: <laughs> this is the problem with coming up with good ideas, yeah, right? right? It's <laughs> like, somebody's yeah. going to ask you to do it.
0: <laughs> yes. So then here I am.
1: Wow. Okay. And so you've been there five years. Yeah. Okay. Now is there, I think I remember talking to Richard about this when we did the interview, but. There's sort of a monastic routine that, that grounds the life there. Do you live right on the campus or do you, I've never been there, so I don't know exactly what the layout is, but.
0: Yeah, when Richard moved here, so Franciscans, part of their, their, their rule is you always live amongst the poor. And so Richard, um, there's a Franciscan parish here in a neighborhood of Albuquerque called the South Valley. And to paint the picture, it's this kind of very historic um, agricultural community that has become um, more of a kind of um, uh, um, poor and lower middle-class Mexican American predominantly um, a community still some farming but not as much as it used to be but just a gorgeous community right on the outskirts of Albuquerque on the other side of the Rio Grande uh, Rio Grande River um, yeah. so our our offices are what used to be one of our office buildings we have three little kind of office buildings that all used to be kind of residential um, properties. One was a vineyard and, and uh, the last user was a, a, a wine operation. It's a little two acre plot of land that has, has one building on it. Then we have another building that's the Damien Brothers former AIDS hospice center. Um, before hospitals were taking AIDS patients, these, this Irish order of brothers. Had moved here to to help hospice AIDS patients, and that's one of our buildings. And then the third one was the Franciscan kind of provincial novitiate, so the place where the Franciscans would form their their young men. Um, so over time, we've acquired all these buildings, and we used to have an internship program and people would stay on site. Um, but these days, our staff is at a capacity where we need all the all the all the land for for our own day to day use. So so I live across the river right there in downtown Albuquerque.
1: Okay, cool. Yeah. So. You may never have thought about it this before, but this will be fun to put you on your toes. Uh, so you talked about being a seven on the Enneagram. Sevens oh. like to have fun, mm-hmm. you know, spontaneous uh, kind of buck routine. My best friend is a seven as well. And I'm a one. So when I'm healthy, I take on the good qualities of the seven and become a little more.
0: Yeah. What's that? When I'm unhealthy, I take on your bad qualities.
1: That's right. Yeah. So really, yep. <laughs> Which actually, there's a funny story about my best friend using that during my, his best man speech at our wedding about how when I'm at my best, I'm basically like him. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> which
1: we still have on video. Um, <laughs> but it was so you talked about, you know, centering prayer being kind of a foundation of practice, but mm-hmm. routine. So it strikes me that I think some people or a lot of people can relate to that. Like, oh, here's this discipline, centering prayer. You know, we teach. 20, minute, 20 to 30 minutes, twice a day, um, that kind of discipline side of things. But I wonder if you've learned anything in your own journey over the last, I don't know how long ago that was, you went to that Taizé retreat, 10 years maybe, of what have you found that kind of sustains you, maybe even outside of a routine, to, to stay grounded in that as you go through these different stages in life and career and all of that?
0: Yeah, stay grounded, um, I feel like is a misnomer, right? Like we're always looking for our own ground and our capacity to find it is always a moving target. Um, so in my continuing search for my own ground. Um, yes, that's, and
1: that's kind of what I'm trying to say. You said it yeah. better than.
0: No, yeah, no, uh, I, I, I'm sure I just, I'm correcting myself. I think I always, am <laughs> like, I gotta stay grounded and it's like, well, that, you know, what does that even mean really? <laughs> Uh yeah, no, I would say um, we do have a rhythm here at the CAC. So we start every workday with a 20-minute sit at 8.30. Um, and it's really helpful. Like when I can make it on time and join the sit. <laughs> and um, right, I, take my daughter, I mean, I know, it sounds so terrible. I take my daughter to school many days. Other days, I pretend I take her to daughter when Richard looks at me when I walk into sit 10 minutes late. And, you know, just don't tell him exactly which days that is.
1: Yeah, that's okay. Uh, but um, Okay, we just found the clip that I'm going to send to him <laughs> <laughs> that we talked about at the beginning.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, so, um, you know, I, I think, you know, Jim Finley, one of our faculty, he, he talks about this. You got to find your, find your teacher, find your practice, find your community, and there's no one-size-fits-all solution. Yeah. So having these intensive experiences where I'm immersed for a period of time, I'm going to be doing a 10-day retreat later this fall that I'm just thrilled about. Um, Where's that going to be? At, at Snowmass in Colorado. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. Um, I've never done a 10-day silent retreat, and there's a certain experience there where you, where you touch into this kind of physical nervous system memory of, of, of finding that ground, if you will, um, uh, and, and that, that inner place um, that helps. But otherwise, you know, for me, it's like I try to do that practice in the morning when I come. And, and other times it's just simple breathing. Like I'm, I have a therapist who's a somatic experiencing practitioner, which is like a somatic kind of modality of, of therapy. And she's been working with me on, you know, seven times throughout the day, how do I pay attention to what's happening with my nervous system? And even then just through a series of, through a breath practice, you know, it can be less than a minute even come back down uh, to my own, to my own ground of being, um, and recognize where I'm functioning out of. I tend to to, to function out of almost a manic state of, of hyper productivity and stimulation. That's very common, I think, for seven. So, um, um, but it puts me at the edges of myself, and especially at the end of the workday, I'm just fried, you know.
1: Yeah. So she, you said seven times. What is that part of this somatic tradition? Uh, where does that come from?
0: That's a great question. I have no idea. But I,
1: well, I- the I- reason I. Here's why it caught my interest or piqued my ear is because as an oblate of St. Benedict in the rule of St. Benedict, the, the literal observance, right. Is to pause for prayer seven times a day. And that comes straight from the Psalms that I can't remember which Psalm it is off the top of my head, but basically, you know, seven times a day pause and, and praise the Lord. And then that became sort of the backbone of the Benedictine and Cistercian rhythm of prayer to come together as a community yeah, offices. yeah the divine office yep sure. so, so then when I hear somebody coming out of like a psychological more secular kind of tradition you know offering the number seven it's like hmm
0: <laughs> yeah yeah
1: so well. she's never kind of explained where that comes from huh
0: no but next next time I'm in there I'll, I'll ask her you
1: should that. yeah I'm just it's curious
0: best- I mean, it's like you know, you could say like two times a day is not enough because because the power of your of your default operating system takes over so immediately.
1: Oh yeah, uh, especially in our culture, because that default anxious operating system is what's reinforced everywhere you turn. Yeah, that's right. Email, phone, all of that stuff. Yeah, uh, it's interesting too. Um, It strikes me that there's some, maybe some wisdom or insight in that recognition that uh, we all kind of think that we're, oh, there's this ground that I have to find Mm -hmm. and someday I'm going to find it. But really the truth is, especially like you listen to some of the great teachers, it's like, well, the discipline actually opens up into this sense of like, well, there is no ground, right? When, what does it even mean to be centered? And maybe the practice is really becoming okay with that instead of the constant grasping of like well someday i'm going to center down and become enlightened or
0: mm. or
1: grounded but maybe part of the the struggle that we're all working on is well how do i become okay with that how do i find little points to to surrender in the midst of the chaos
0: mm. the ground of no ground <laughs> yeah yeah Tom, you should start a podcast or something.
1: You should. Oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> Shoot, if only I were recording this and we could save it. <laughs> but also that to go back to that touch point of like just taking a minute to breathe, come back into the the, pre- the bodily presence. Um, I think for a lot of people in the centering prayer contemplative outreach community, uh, you hear a lot of people find support. In addition to the, like their sit in the welcoming prayer, if you're familiar with that, mm-hmm. um, which is a kind of a it is, there's a somatic component of like coming back to the present moment, right. what am I experiencing, accepting it, surrendering it, and that becomes like a touchstone to come back to when you're not going to sit for 20 minutes. Yep. so it seems like
0: yeah, that, I think that's great. I, I think welcoming prayer, I rarely find that I have the time. Um, I've talked to to Cynthia Bergeau, one of our teachers about this. I really find that I have the time in the moment when I'm, when I find myself, um, you know, caught by an emotion. Um, but her point was like, if you do the practice enough, it's like you, your body builds that memory of how to notice that you're caught and go through that presencing yourself to your own bodily sensation and letting it go. And then being able to show up from that place of greater resourcefulness or, or, or freedom, um, uh, yeah, it's one that I've definitely tried to, to to work with. I mean, even good leadership development schools, a lot of it it's about noticing your triggers and how do you actually be present to what's actually happening. Yeah, we've all yeah. done, right? right? Um, but I think that that part of the tradition it's it's great practice of of self surrender because in those moments, you know, your your small self has just completely taken over um, uh, your you know your way of functioning.
1: That's I'm I'm kind of glad to hear you say that because I. There was a time where I tried really hard to do. There's like a kind of a bit of a set routine to the to the welcoming prayer, and I too found like it was a little cumbersome for being in the moment, yeah. uh, going through my day. Yeah. But then I but then I was like, that's okay, and I I come back to like you said, like just a a, a bodily presence or a breath, or even to use the sacred word I use in centering prayer, just in the moment and kind of have a quick check in and let go. Yeah. Mm. So,
0: Do you ever share about what your sacred word is? I love like, it's like, it's like sacred word. It's like, uh, I love (laughs) that question. And then either they're very comfortable, they get caught off guard, and it kind of feels too intimate. It's like. uh,
1: I've, uh, I've used Shalom. Yeah, Uh, yeah.
0: that's lovely. I don't know (laughs) if
1: there's any rule on whether or not you're supposed to share that publicly or not. But I just did. So there it is. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, I do teach the intro workshop, too. And, you know, the teaching from Keating and and Cynthia and others is like the the word itself doesn't matter. Yeah. It's the intention that you attach to it, that intention to be present, to consent, to the divine presence in action. Yeah.
0: Yeah. My my word is, is uh, the very obvious trust Um, because it's, it really is like, for me, everything comes down, like letting go of my own reactivity in that moment comes, comes down to, um, it's always fear that is driving me you know like at the lowest yeah. at, the, at the deepest level somehow it's always I've got to be in control of this moment I can't let this happen it's you know whatever and so for me that's that's the intention that's been I, I would say the most helpful but I don't but I don't know how much it's 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 working yet so we'll
1: see <laughs> <laughs> well it's always doing its thing right and it manifests in its own time the fruits I think yeah yeah well, I know you got to run a um, couple. Can I do we have time for a couple of quick questions?
0: Sure. Yeah.
1: All right. I like to throw these at people at the end and, and just ask you to fill in the following phrase with whatever pops into your head. And since you're a seven, you'll go with it because you, you won't self-censor as much.
0: <laughs> I will self-censor zero. <laughs> yeah,
1: I love it. All right. So contemplation is.
0: Ooh, I, I have to just use what I love. What Richard's line is a long loving look at the real
1: and where does that come from i've heard that somewhere else maybe it came from him
0: he stole it uh from yeah yeah Yeah.
1: i think it might be david benner
0: is it yeah
1: yeah Yeah. we'll send him this clip too Uh, (laughs) (laughs) the purpose of contemplation is all about
0: awakening uh, connection to our true identity.
1: Is there a word or a phrase that captures the heart of your contemplative experience?
0: Mm. Mm. I'll offer that right now it's grief, um, Mm. which may seem um, odd, but um, um, coming out of the work you know, the, the, the violence prevention work, um, what, what I've discovered is that I have just a reservoir of grief to work through, um, that often arises in my, in my contemplative practice. And it's not just that work. I mean, I think it's, it's the grief of the whole first half of life project as well that goes along with that, you know, mm. uh, a grief of recognizing my own kind of compromised motives at times, you know, um, um So these days, these days, lately, it's been grief that that is the kind of signature emotion that arises in my practice.
1: Hmm. I found too that grief or sadness has a a kind of purifying or cleansing quality to it as well. Somehow enables letting go at a deeper level.
0: Yeah, it feels like the right feeling for me. Like it feels like my path right now. Um, um,
1: That's actually been a little bit of a theme in my guess that I've noticed. Really? Yeah. I don't think I would have ever said that out loud or consciously until right now in this moment. But I do think that that has been a theme that's come up for people. Mm. If you're paying attention and you really see what's going on and the suffering within yourself and around you, it's kind of the only humane human response. Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And maybe the, the right one.
0: Yeah. It certainly is a way to, 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 to detach from our addiction to the to the status quo, right? When you when you actually touch into the ways that the status quo is dehumanizing us. Um,
1: yeah. Mm. Okay. Uh, two more. What what is your hope for the next generation of contemplative practitioners?
0: Mm. Yeah. That 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 I, I would consider myself in that category, and I would say that we find the permission to to have our own experience. Mm. And uh, what I mean by that is in the context of this massive generational shift in attitudes towards religious traditions, um, there's a way that the tradition oftentimes tells you how you're supposed to be experiencing things. And I think, you know, for, for I'm a millennial, technically I'm an old millennial, but um, for many of us, there's this kind of like the 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 matrix has gotten so flawed that we're throwing out the whole thing, right, and the danger in that is that we lack a language now to name the deeper dimensions of our own experience um, so so to find the languages and the avenues to to being you know if, if we actually are in connection with the reality of our own experience, everything else happens from there you know yeah. um, so that would be my hope Wow,
1: oh wow, what is your hope for? maybe the future of the church or the Christian tradition, or we might say the, maybe the activist and the contemplative together.
0: Uh, To save the world? (laughs) (laughs) Mic Uh, drop. Yeah. (laughs) No, I mean, um, yeah, to me, this is it. Um, Like on the one hand, on the one hand, this is the only thing that to me bears promise. And on the other hand, it's the tradition that says at, at the end of the day, we're not in control and, and suffering is inevitable. Mm. Um, and so I'm struggling with that paradox all the time um, because I tend to be very much, no, no, we're going to fix this. You know, like that's my whole orientation towards the world. And um, so, you know, very practically, I think um, we need to develop an interspiritual Christianity. I think you know, to, to do what Richard has been doing, and this has been a big part of his project. It's really to claim that the, the beauty in our tradition in a way that isn't burdened by parochial um, uh, frameworks and and language and mentalities. Um, And, um, and if we can do that, um, you know, it's, these spiritual traditions historically are the, the seedbed of unleashing revolutionary action in the world, um, mm. nonviolent, like positive revolutionary action in the world. Um, I think you'd be hard pressed to find an honest to God, nonviolent social movement that, that led the transformation that, that didn't, you know, have its roots firmly within a tradition. Um, and uh, I think we've been in this period of deconstruction, like you had some of that in the, in the sixties, Um, Those institutions and traditions have, you know, we've been in this kind of mass social deconstruction phase. Um, So how can we um, put the pieces back together of something that's newly workable and and allow it to be the seedbed in which that kind of radical and revolutionary action that is called for in our world today uh, can arise in that spirit of creative love.
1: Arise in a spirit of creative love. I think that's the perfect place to end. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much, Tom. It's been a, been a
1: pleasure to be with
0: you and look forward to being co-conspirators in this work.
1: Absolutely. Thanks. We'll be in touch soon.
0: All right. Bye-bye.
1: All right. Thanks, Michael. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to Contemplate This. You can learn more about Michael Poffenberger and his work with Resolve and the Center for Action and Contemplation on the show notes page at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 20. You can also link to our new collection of essays in the book, Contemplation and Community, A Gathering of Fresh Voices, just released from Crossroads Publishing Company. I hope you find yourself inspired by Michael's witness to the integration of contemplation and compassionate social action. Not all of us can or even need to go to India or Africa to participate in radical witnesses to love and justice. There is plenty of suffering for us to encounter in our daily lives and our local communities, and our daily spiritual practice can help us to open to those opportunities to serve with love and justice. Until next time, may you find in the heart of your daily contemplative practice the grounding and the centering you need to be peace in the world.